Well, hello, guys. This is uh, another episode of the Acre Podcast, where we talk all things arts, culture, religion, and entrepreneurship, specifically centered around the city of Memphis. And today we have uh, the executive director of uh, City Leadership, which runs the Choose 901 campaign, which I know a lot of us are familiar with. Uh, and this episode is uh, one not to skip for... What am I even saying there? This episode uh, was awesome. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, the conversation was uh, extremely fascinating. If you've ever had any real questions about how uh, millennial generation thinks through things or makes decisions, uh, really cool stuff from uh, John Carroll. So without further ado, uh, let's get into it. John Carroll, the uh, head of city leadership, choose 901. I can't even look at you without laughing. <laughs> Let me give the full disclosure here. So this is actually my brother-in-law, right? Still, currently, currently, <laughs> and has been for how long have you been married? Since '03. So, so he's been 14 married. years and some change. Okay, so you've been married to my sister for almost 15 years. Almost 15 years. All right. So and you've been married to my sister's sister-in-law. No, my wife's sister-in-law. You, yeah, you've been married for a while. Same, same. <laughs> yeah, they're related. You got married. Yeah. <laughs> so you. John Carroll with City Leadership, uh, Choose 901. Thank you for coming here. Uh, you were asking what exactly this is, and I think this would be a good time to kind of explain that. So this is whatever it needs to be. So I just want to get you in studio because I know uh, you're doing a lot of cool things within the city uh, with City Leadership and Choose 901 and all Thanks. that stuff. Uh, I also know you have a lot of history with fellowship. Yes. So Choose 901. Yes. Right? Choose 901 is mm -hmm. your organization as well. Right, but it's not your organization. It's a campaign. It's a campaign of city leadership. Yeah, okay. a lot of people think it's a org or that there are people that work right. there, but no one gets paid by Choose Nine One. Right, a, I think uh, Choose Nine One has developed a ton of awareness. You know, more than the name City Leadership has. Oh yeah, of course. Definitely. So I mean, so walk me through how you guys got to the point where you said, okay, now it's time to launch this campaign. How did that name come about? Like, what was that whole process? Yeah. So the so the. Going back to the fact that we wanted to be a part of recruiting talent to the city, and we knew that uh, one of the things we were talking about a lot in 2010, I say we, I usually mean me and John Bryson, uh, when we were thinking through how to get talent to the city, we were looking at it going, man, you know, 10 years from now in 2020, um, a lot of people who are running orgs are going to either be retired or expired, <laughs> you know, um, and so... Um, you know, whether that's in their life or just their methods are just not, you know, functional anymore for the systems and whatever. And so mm -hmm. we're just thinking, how do we reload a lot of leaders into that space? And so that's where we wanted to take that on as a responsibility and make sure that, you know, every time an org has funding or capacity for high quality leadership that doesn't go filled, you know, uh, that is, uh, it, it's like, you know, not putting you know, money into your 401k, right, from the city kind of deal. You can't ever go back and get that compound interest on the leadership capacity for the city, right? Yeah. So, so every time, you know, um, you know, if MTR has 85 spots and they only have 50 qualified applicants and they only get 45 in there, well, that's 40 people who don't move to Memphis and the return on investment of that 40, I mean, you never get back, you never get 2012 back and get those 40 people to spend the next 10 years of their life here. Yeah. You know, and so, um, and so what we realized was that, uh, you know, in about 2011, as, as our relationships were developing with all these people about recruiting, uh, you know, I was just going about my normal, you know, weekly check-ins with 
different clients that we had and asking them questions about challenges they may be having. And you know, about four out of six of those check-ins over about a month and a half or so were revolved around, you know, you know, stress they were experiencing revolved around going underfilled in these kind of recruiting roles and, and that they were getting, you know, the people they were getting were good, but they needed, they had more capacity. And so we thought, man, we, where are people going? So like the people that you were trying to recruit, yes. where are the hotspots that they were going to at that point? What do you mean? Other cities? Yeah. Or? I mean, what was, what were the big draws out there that you were trying to sell? Like you're trying to sell people to come to Memphis mm-hmm. versus what? Like what's. Well, so what we found was, is that, is that people don't assume naturally that they're going to enjoy living in Memphis. And that's really what I, we've spent a lot of time studying the millennial decision-making process. And I know that. What is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what everyone else says. <laughs> what in the world is that? Um, but what we did was we looked at... Did you figure it out? I think that we figured it out. In fact, you know, I know that it sounds weird in this context or whatever, but I mean, most, you know, where I go speak around the country or whatever, I mean, it's basically because we figured this out. I mean, I'm considered, you know, kind of a national expert in that philosophy or thought of decision-making. And so, um, but what we found and identified is uh, that there is, what we've labeled it is, is that, you know, these every generation has had a decision making teeter totter trigger, or that they've choose one option or another based on something else. So, uh, so millennials' grandparents made decisions on is this option safer than this option, right? So, what the decisions they were making were based on safety because they were coming out of the Great World Wars and Great Depression, yeah, right. And so the world was completely volatile at any moment; it, the world could fall apart again, and so. They, they had to make decisions based on safety. And they raised their kids with that decision-making process of hard work and be safe, right? And millennials' parents um, were raised during the safest decades in the history of the world, right? I mean, uh, the 80s, and or not raised, but they were living and thriving as adults in the 80s and 90s. You know, they literally had a war where nothing was fired. Yeah, <laughs> it was cold. Right. Right. The war was completely cold. <laughs> right, and so, um, so obviously, you know, there was the threat of whatever, but it wasn't in reality. It was actually the safest decades in history, and so, um, and they lived at the financial peak of any mass civilization of any nation ever. Right, so yeah. the 80s and 90s in America. There was no civilization civilization ever that had the mass number of people with so much wealth. And so uh, they weren't wrestling with safety or security. They were wrestling with fulfillment. Will this thing fulfill me more than this thing? Um, because they had gone without and perceived in their own minds of now looking at the options that were out there in the world, right? They were raised with this safety mentality. So, you know, parents, well, we can't go there. We can't spend here. We can't, you know, have something, whatever, because you never know if everything's going to fall apart. Well, now these options are out here and say, like, well, this house is bigger. This boat is awesome. Well, I want two houses. I want this car. I want this marriage. Well, nope, I want this marriage. Whatever. Like, they were raised in this fulfillment process. And as they were fulfilling their kids with the things that they didn't have, I just did air quotes on a podcast, so I don't know that, <laughs> if anybody well, it's filmed. that. There's yeah. at least three or four people that watch the video. <laughs> From Kansas City. From Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> so, or been to Kansas City. Um, and so, um, so they... Um, so as they were fulfilling their kids, they've raised a millennial generation that is 
making their decisions on will I enjoy this option more than I enjoy that option. And so they're, we call them the... They're looking to have a good time. They, they're the enjoy generation. And so uh, will I enjoy this job more than that? And it doesn't necessarily mean that everything they choose to enjoy is actually easier. You know, some people choose to enjoy something that's more complex, harder, harder work, or different, you know, whatever deal. But it's it really based on joy. In fact, uh, you can actually study Coca-Cola branding. They change their slogan to enjoy uh, specifically to identify with the millennial generation. Now, when we talk about millennial generation, people keep thinking about, you know, a 21-year-old with, like, you know, tattoos and a skateboard or something. Right. You know, millennials are born nineteen. I'm technically millennial. Not technically, you are millennial. Okay, you're as millennial. You. You're in this. What does that even mean? I mean, you're in a lumberjack flannel shirt, <laughs> and we're doing a podcast, and you haven't shaved in five days. Like you're as millennial as it gets. What is happening right now? Right? You know what I'm saying? It's so like um, we're gonna edit that out. All right. <laughs> first thing we're gonna do when this thing shuts down. <laughs> so millennials are born 1980, 1999, and so uh, you know, millennials right now are. 18 to, you know, 36, 37 years old. And so, um, you know, we think of millennials as these little, you know, young kids coming out of college, but, you know, a millennial can be, you know, somebody owns a house in the suburbs with three kids and a mortgage, you know, and, and, um, so, um, whose wife is pregnant and expecting this June. I mean, it could be that <laughs> could be millennial. That millennial. <laughs> so uh, that, you know, wearing a flannel shirt right now, yes. like that, that's how millennial that's that exactly can be. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so as we look at that, we're trying to figure out why would they make these decisions. And so going all the way back to that, we're looking at and going, realizing that they're making decisions based on what they're going to enjoy. And people enjoy making a difference in society because uh, that's another... People enjoy different things. That's another factor about right. millennials, that they actually enjoy... Uh, there's a, there's a, they have the largest percentage inside of a generation that's ever been me- measured that they actually want their lives and their work to be about making a difference. Not just their things they do after work or not just their philanthropy to make a difference millennials unlike any generation that's ever been measured before wants their work to be about making a difference in society and so uh it's not that every millennial is like that but it's the highest percentage ever so we thought man can we tap into those people who want to make a difference we need those people in memphis coming here to make a difference Hmm. Uh, millennials are also more optimistic than any other uh generation ever measured in in history and so if you've been born since 1980 uh, about three out of five people born since 1980 self-identify as optimistic instead of uh, realistic or pessimistic, whereas in only one out of five people born before 1980 self-identify as optimistic. <laughs> and so, uh, so there's a different language there and a different communication about, you know, they look at, you know, uh, if you're born before 1980, you might look at an opportunity in a city and think, that's a, I don't know if that's going to work out. And that you still might go do it, even though you're pessimistic about it, you know, or you might avoid it because you're, you know, you, it's very rare to find someone ever. A millennial could look at that exact same problem and go, man, that's the biggest problem, whatever. I bet we can solve it, yeah, you know? And so right. they've got this optimism about it. And not only that, not only are they optimistic, they believe in themselves unlike any other generation. 70% of them believe that any endeavor they take on, they'll finish first or second. Is this because the trophy generation? Yeah, they're complete trophied. Yeah. And, and the trophy thing has completely backfired. Actually, all the studies show that the trophies have not only backfired in a way where they know, right, because they're the, they have the best BS re- reader in the entire gen- world of any generation ever. Their entire lives have been advertised to. So, you know, they've experienced more advertisement. You know, 
a millennial experiences more advertisement in a day than someone 150 years ago did their entire life, right? Wow. They, ex they ex actually experience more media in a week than someone 120 years ago was ever exposed to in their entire life. Right. Wow. So yeah. they're they're just they've got so much exposure. They've got so much practice reading through advertisements, marketing, people trying to whatever do. That's fascinating. So they have a they have you know better deal. But what what they're really passionate about is that in making this optimism, they believe that they're going to finish well. And you know this trophy thing. They 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 know they know that the participation trophies were is is not real. It's nonsense. Right. right. What it actually did. The worst thing it's actually done for this generation is it's made people you know who are really good at something be apathetic because they think i can't get recognized for being good um, because everyone gets recognized for just trying and it's actually it, it, it all the studies are showing right now that is actually uh held back what could be even greater effort and what could even happen with greater success of people of high capacity in whatever it is athletics academics whatever um, because everything's been, everybody gets a 4.0 yeah. instead of just people who are intelligent, right? Yeah, why should I work yeah. harder if yeah. I'm just going to get the same thing? That, yes. Right. So wh why should I try to make them apathetic into that space? It makes them consumers. And honestly, the people who are making money in the world, that's exactly what they want them to be. They don't care if they're high performing. They just want them to be high purchasing. You know, and so they want, cons they want a consumer nation. They don't care if the nation who is, is critical. They? Anyone who has the opportunity to sell, not anyone, but, you know, historically, you know, it's been people who have an opportunity to sell things to a mass part of the nation. You know, if you have the ability to sell something huge, right? I mean, you know, I don't... Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola, right? Unilever, you know. Um, you went yeah. to Unilever? Well, <laughs> is that like a soap? Is that a soap? Well, they own... It's a multi-glomerate soap company. <laughs> Yeah, but they also own a lot of other household products that people buy, right? Okay. Uh, I was Apple. Thinking, I was thinking cars or something like yeah, that. Yeah, cars, cars, yes, yes. So Unilever. Uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a it's huge a, deal. It's, people yeah. need soap. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's conspiracy at this point. People use soap every day. <laughs> it's conspiracy. But they're completely fine making money off consumer. People want to consume and criticize. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I think that some of that has, we've, we've shifted in that enjoyment philosophy, that's become a byproduct of that. Um, by Well, pushing fulfillment and thus making them enjoyment generation, a byproduct has been an increasing amount of consumers and criticizers instead of creators and cultivators. And hmm. so and we've... Yeah, that's definitely something that you can see. We've throttled that capacity or even passion, maybe not capacity, but passion uh, and development in this generation. And so... Um, we're way off from the original question you asked me, but what we've done here is we've defined how people make this decision. And what we had to answer in Memphis instead of other places was, is that they would enjoy living in Memphis. Um, because what we knew is we knew they were optimistic, right? Uh, we knew they wanted but to, they didn't know they would enjoy it. Yeah. We knew they were optimistic. And so we knew that our problems weren't as big as to them as they were to historically pessimistic Memphians. That's not true just for Memphis. Every city has historical, pessimistic, whatever. Memphis just seems to have a really good, developed pessimism. Yeah. Um, and you know, we always say, you know, you never learn anything bad about, about Memphis till you move here and a Memphian tells you. You know, right. I mean, the rest of the nation actually, uh, our studies show that 70 plus percent of people who've never been to Memphis or never lived in Memphis 
have a neutral opinion on the city. Hmm. Uh, 20% have a positive opinion, and 10% have a, have a negative opinion on the city. It's actually a very high uh, percentage-wise compared to other cities, in fact, hmm. higher than New York, higher, you know. Uh, Which was very interesting, because when I moved here, and whenever I'd give anybody my phone number at like a store, yeah, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Area codes, yes. for, you know, it's a Dallas area code. Mm-hmm. So they'd be like, where are you from? Still, Dallas. which is a problem for you, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd say Dallas, and they're like, what are you doing here? It's like, I just moved here. And it's the same question every single time. Why? You know, why would you do <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, Memphis has a really uh, hard time of telling how green its grass is, right? I mean, it, it, absolutely. It, it, you can be. You know, any grass, any one blade of grass out there is super green uh, for a lot of Memphians. And they don't realize how great it is here. And so um, so we had to answer that question of would they enjoy living here? Because we knew that they'd be willing to come in here and join us in making a difference. And, and it's actually, we have a more attractive place to make a difference than other places um, be, because of two things. One, we have a lot of frontline space, right? Like you can, you because we have, a, we have a, because for the size of the city, the amount of, uh, opportunities that we have to make a difference. We have a lot of frontline space, so you can actually come here, and you can be here a week, you know, and you can actually be on the front lines, and you can actually feel measurable difference in someone's life pretty quickly. Because that's very true. Yeah, and so it's it, it there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, you know, in fact, where there's you know there's more people on welfare in Dallas than there is here, but there's just so many more people not on welfare in Dallas than there is in in Memphis that there's not as much frontline space. Absolutely, right? and so. Um, and so that, uh, so that you can feel that you can make a difference, uh, in, into that, uh, into that pretty quickly. Um, you know, and then the other side is that, is that you can actually enjoy living here, right? You, you know, you, you can really, really enjoy living here, but that's not some, that's not something that's, you know, talked about a lot, you know, because a lot of times, because Memphians don't enjoy living here, which yeah. I'm always like, well, then move, you know, right. uh, but um, so they don't talk about it enough, but you know when you think about it nationally, you know you don't even think about Dallas when you think about all right, what city would I enjoy living in in the United States? I mean, you don't just like Dallas isn't the first one ever. Atlanta is not. You might think, you might think Austin, San Diego. You know, depending on what you're interested in, people might think Denver because they want to go skiing, or they might think some city on the beach because you know yeah. it's on the beach. Um, but you don't naturally think of, of Memphis, but you don't naturally think of a lot of cities, you know, when, yeah. when you when you when you make that list or whatever deal. So we had to make the case and make the argument in that space. And so that's what we did with with choose not a one. And you asked me <laughs> I don't even remember what you asked me a long time ago. But, it doesn't even matter. But what we did was is what we had to do is we knew we had to take the org's opportunities and put them into an envelope that seemed, you know, that presented this as you could be actually be aware of the opportunity, um, which is a whole other issue. But two, we had to put next to that the the fact that they were actually going to enjoy living in the city. So that's why we talked about all these cool things that were happening here. You know, almost every day um, I meet somebody uh, that will inevitably end up thanking me for what we do at Choose 901. And what I always try to say is, is, that, is that, you know, we're not really doing anything at Choose Not a One. Uh, I know that sounds weird. We're not doing any, we're not doing the things that we're talking about. These things were already happening. You know, I mean, you know, 
we, we were confident to start choosing that one because there was already so many great things happening in the city that we knew we'd have material to talk about, you yeah. know? Um, and there's so many things that are happening in the city, especially as the more and more people actually believe in the city and, and have growing optimism about it, people are willing to take that risk and go do this kind of stuff. What we're doing is we're putting a megaphone on the voices out there, and we're putting a spotlight on the activities out there. We're just showing Memphians and the rest of the world what's actually already happening here. We're not actually doing any of this stuff. Right. You know, so we're just allowing you a convenient way uh, you know, to be able to see it. And so we're trying to show college seniors that enjoyment that's happening, but we also have to tell them about this opportunity because here's what's happening. When you go to college... You know, if you're never from here, whatever, there's no reason that you would ever know about Downline or SOS or, or you know, Memphis Teacher Residency or whatever. But, you know, Memphis Teacher Residency is the number one urban education training program in the country, right? It's located right here in Memphis. It's whatever. It, it, I mean, there are studies. How old is that organization? Like seven years. So in mean, seven years, it became the best one. Oh, but it's been like the best one for like four years. I mean, like, <laughs> so it like, didn't take like, long. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. are, and it and, and doesn't mean, I mean, our TFA here in Memphis is one of the top TFAs in the whole country. I mean, I mean, we've got incredible urban education development happening in the city, right? Um, so if you're at college in Fayetteville or Ole Miss or, you know, Howard or Clark or Auburn or whatever, and you're a sophomore and you hear someone speak about urban education or you think about, you know, I want to make a difference and help kids, whatever deal – you're immediately going, you know, where could I go do that? How, whatever, you know? And really what we found over and over again with helping them make a decision is, is the first organization that can get in front of those students and make a compelling statement about what their program is and, wins. and where it is. What and where. We've got to be able to, to make that whatever. They're the organization that's most likely to get that person into that space. And so we had to we had to get that to people as quickly as possible. And that was our whole goal, was to get that information to people making decisions about where they wanted to be and make sure they knew about the opportunities. And then we enveloped them together because what millennials do, which is different from the two generations before them, and is actually different than the history of the world, right? So we're only like, you know, besides like pioneers who were like the weird, you know, two percenters that would leave settlements to go start something or whatever, the history of the world, people don't like move off to some other city to go get a job. Right. You know, like that's not what people do. America and first world countries have created this process and that's become something that's more recent, obviously, over the last hundred years. So the, you know, um, millennials, grandparents did it some and their parents did it a lot. They would move to a city um, because there was a job there, because that job paid fifteen thousand dollars more, or because that job came with you know some word in front of its title, you know, vice whatever deal or something, you know, became a title, and they would move to a city and get a job, get power, they'd get money, and they'd get some power or title, or whatever. Then they'd figure out who they're in love with there and who their friends are, you know, um, and those were the big four needs for millennials' parents: money, power, love, friendships. Millennials have the exact same needs. They've just flipped the order in which they value them. So they're figuring, all right, where are my friends? Where, where do they live? And what do they do? Who am I in love with inside that friend group? You know, How can I have influence or power? How can I make a difference in that space? And then how do I make enough money to pay for that? Yeah. And really, when that, it means 
iPhone, sushi, Ikea furniture, and a cool place to live. Like, that's really, you know, like, if you go fishing for millennials, you just have to present a job that can cover those four levels of bait. And if you eat you know? Ikea, you <laughs> yeah. pay them even less. Yes, yeah. yeah. Or just live in one. I, I, I still think someone needs to blog about how living in an Ikea, I, I, it's got to be possible with how big those places are. Someone could pull that off. I spent a night in college in a Walmart, and it was miserable, but fun, and whatever, but surely someone could live a month. There's somebody Ikea. listening to this right now that's going to do that. I hope so. I hope someone's already done it. I want to see a documentary on that. I lived in Ikea, or I lived in only Ikeas around the world. Like, that would be unbelievable uh, without them knowing. It's got to be possible. You know, one of those kid bunk beds, just zip it up at night. and Yeah, yeah I mean, you could easily just hide in there. And totally, yeah. yes. And work there, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just throw on a vest. Yeah. yeah. Do they wear vests? I no hope way. so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope so. So that's what we had to do. That's what we had to communicate in that space. And so they have that same, they have the same four basic needs or wants, you know, um, but they've inversed the way they make that decision. So what we found was, is that if we could get all the way to that Auburn dorm room and let somebody know about MTR, that our biggest competitor for getting them here was actually not another urban education program. It was their roommate who was majoring an engineer major who just got a job in Atlanta because there's urban education jobs in every city in the country, right? You can literally not just, you can be a teacher in every city in the country and make within probably 5% of the same salary, yeah. you know, and work with kids, right? And make a difference in someone's life. So we compete with every city in the country to get these educators here. And education is like nursing engineers, uh, it, uh, accountants. These are all occupations where there are less people than there are chairs. It's like playing musical chairs with 10 pe- 10 chairs and seven people, right? Music stops and they sit wherever they want to. And, and if you get to sit wherever you want to, where do you sit? You sit next to your friend. You sit in a chair that you're familiar with, right? A hometown or something you're comfortable with. You sit in the nicest chair, that you, whatever you think is the nicest chair, when you have the options, right? Uh, it's not like another industry or other industries where there's 15 people walking around 10 chairs and music stops and they're trying to get whatever. Or the way the workforce actually used to be when, you know, uh, Generation X was coming up, when it's a smaller generation than boomers, and there was more jobs, or sorry, less jobs than, nope, millennials, right? So right. more people, right, than jobs, right? And so, um, you know, now with these occupations, we've got less people than whatever. So we got to get them to come here. So what, the reason why I choose not one, package these different opportunities together, we try to say like, hey, we'll, you know, we say right off the bat, we'll help your friend find an engineering job in Memphis, you know? Or what if their roommate wants to work in housing development and uh, wants to work at Binghamton Development Corp? You know, we can help promote these jobs together, these opportunities together. Uh, or what if the roommate doesn't know what they want to do, but would love to spend a year in downline, you know, like so many of us have over the years, and try to figure it out for a year and willing to, you know, work at a restaurant or, you know, serve at an after-school program for a year while they're figuring it out because they need a gap year program. <laughs> well, by getting these things together, we're more likely to get two. Millennials are more likely to move in groups. Interesting. Whereas in their parents were more likely to move as one. And so um, we always say you never recruit one millennial. If you do, you actually, it's, it's like, you know, you left millennials on the table, so to speak, right? You're more likely to recruit three or four and get them to come in uh, than any at all. And we see that when Crazy. we recruit over and over again. You know, A&M a couple of years, we had zero people, zero people, then we had four, then five, then four, then we had zero again. 
You know, like mm. when we were recruiting for that never place. Never just one. It's never, it's rarely, rarely just one. And if it is just one, they're usually coming because, well, my roommate last year moved here and we had a big plan or the person I'm dating is already there. And so coming in. So the ones are usually already connected to a friend or a loved one into the city. Crazy, man. Yeah. So understanding that totally changes the way you recruit because we tell corporations all the time, you know, when you're talking to someone trying to convince them to move here, you need to ask them, hey, who else are you who else are you making a decision on on what city you're moving to and what kind of job are they looking for? Because if you don't ask that question, just know that when they as soon as they hang up with you, whether they're applying at MTR or AutoZone, they're hanging up and they're looking across the front. Okay, here's how the interview went, here's whatever. Have, have you found any job opportunities there? Have you interviewed anywhere there? Because are we going to Memphis? And the, if the other person says, Hey, I know you interviewed there, but I've already got a job offer in whatever city in the world. Then immediately they're going, okay, okay, okay. Well, you've already, you got the job offer. So now I'm going to try to find a job over there. And so you've got to be aggressive on the front end, not only making the offers quicker, but immediately start saying, Hey, I know you're working here or I know you're planning to work here. Who are your friends that are looking for jobs as well? And how do we get them connected? Because even though they commit, if they're six months out from school or whatever deal, if the other person that they're connected to gets a job and they can't get whatever, you could end up losing the person that you even got on the hook. It's crazy. It's really crazy. But once you figure it out, it's way easier. I mean, we're, you know, we're You're getting more for your money. Not only more for your money. I mean, but it just, it, it it's just fun to do, right? Because it's actually more fun to not tell someone, Hey, you got to come. Once you join us in doing something really, really hard all by yourself. Yeah. Well, we don't even have the, it's not even about the money. We don't have the relational capacity to be everyone's best friend when they move to town. So it's much, it's much smarter if they all move together. And if they move together, the retention goes way up. Hmm. If they, if one just comes, they're very likely to leave in a year because their three other roommates moved to whatever city. And, you know, now they're over there. They're seeing their Instagram posts. Yeah. Yeah. They're seeing their Instagram posts, but then. Wherever the three people are and the ones on solo, every, every weekend, they're going to that city to go visit them. Hey, you need to come get a job. It's much easier to get one person a job in whatever that city is than to get three people, whatever. So we've got to get the three. And when we get the three, we realize, hey, there's a couple of ones sitting out there. And when we were actually recruiting, we go back to the three. Hey, we know you moved here last year. Who's your buddy that's in some other city right now that regrets not moving here last year? Can we get them a job here too? Yeah. And, and I don't care what it is. I mean, we, we obviously – or recruiting for a certain group of things that we're marketing those jobs at, at choose not a one, a certain group of jobs that you can go see at choose not a one.com and underneath the invest page. But, um, but honestly, anything they want to do, I would help them get a job because I know it's going to increase the retention of those other people. And that's a big issue, right? So education 25 years ago, the average teacher taught for nine and a half years, very similar nurses stayed in the nursing profession for nearly 10 years, 25 years ago. Today, the average teacher stays in the profession for 4.1 years, or 4.2 years, and the average nurse is 4.1. So cut in half. More than cut in half. And here's the deal. It's our fault. We well-rounded this generation so much that they graduate with a nursing degree, they go become a nurse for four years, and they think, okay, well, now I want to be you know, a singer or a coffee shop owner or an investment banker or 
or I want to go back to school and I want to be an engineer or whatever it is. Like, you know, we told them all during grow up that they had to make an A in math and an A in English. They had to make an A in history and an A in Spanish. They had to, you know, compete on the, you know, varsity sports team and be in the play. They had to have a job and volunteer. They had to be at home and be awesome. And they had to go like travel and whatever deal. And so like we made them so well-rounded and then we get, we get so perplexed when, you know, three or four years in, millennial exhibit a in front of me included you know gets a degree in one thing a job in another pivots to another job and then goes back to school gets another degree and gets another job and then even inside that job pivots that job three times into their current <laughs> job right and you're how old uh 33 yeah so yeah. the last you know 11 years have been you know you know five careers and you know um a bunch of pivots nine pivots right, right. and so um but there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, absolutely, I, absolutely nothing. I tell people all the time, almost every day in my office, you can hear me sitting with a 20 year old saying, spend your twenties saying no and quitting things like there, you've got, you know, when you were born, right, there was a hundred thousand job opportunities out there. But by the time you're 22, that's all been narrowed down to about a hundred realistic opportunities that you can, whatever. And there's probably 10 of those that would really fire you up every single day, make you passionate, get out of bed, figure out what those 10 are, rank them one to 10, go try number one. As soon as you figure out number one is not the job you want the rest of your life, quit and go try number two, right? And go figure out how that, that order and fi- go down the list until you figure out the job that you're so passionate about. And each one of those jobs, keep learning how to handle stress, be incredible employee, take the soft skills that you can continue to develop in all these spaces and be the best employee they ever had. Even while you're there, even if it's not the job you want the rest of your life, don't be afraid to pivot and continue to refine. And by the time you're 30, 35, and it, hopefully by 40, you've figured out exactly what you want to do for that big 20 year run in your career. That's not the advice that people were giving people, you know, 10 years not ago, 50 years ago, whatever. Yeah. But it, but because of the mass amount of people that we've developed that are so well-rounded, have so many passions, so many different abilities, it's got to be the advice that we give them now. Or what we'll end up with is, you know, people who are incredibly empty, you know, when they're 35, 45, whatever, doing something, whatever, uh, in that space, because they didn't find what they wanted to do early on. Some people do find it and do it for 40 years. And that's great. Um, you know, they're incredibly empty, uh, in that space or they, you know, when, and when they're empty, they either make that brave pivot later on in their career when it's harder to make that pivot at 45 with kids and mortgages and whatever, or they have what we call a midlife crisis. I almost did air quotes again. I guess there's a camera. The camera, the midlife <laughs> crisis, you know. And so they, you know, and then they destroy their family in the midst of trying to figure out who they really are. Yeah. And and what we're what I say is spend your twenties figuring out how exactly God's wired these gifts to be maximized. You know, when God, you know, created the world, right? Most of these jobs didn't exist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Most. And so. Um, <laughs> All the jobs except like farming, <laughs> you know. Even then, we were just running around killing things and eating. Yeah, I don't even have farming. It was just really consuming, <laughs> right? But like you know, naming things that was like the big job. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Millennials are good at that hashtagging. And so, uh, but you know, these jobs didn't are just most jobs didn't exist a hundred years ago, much less you know a thousand years ago, whatever. So, 
so stop worrying that some single job or whatever is going to make them more holy than whatever. You know, you got to figure out what is really going to help them fulfill the great you know commandment of loving God and loving others, and doing that, and just being proud to do that for two years or for forty-two years. You are not born in Memphis native, but you did get here around 05. Yeah, I actually came here in 04. Okay, so uh, walk me through that process. What happened? Yeah, so yeah, not from Memphis. I'm from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We we say Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro, Tennessee. <laughs> uh, people from Murfreesboro say they're from Nashville, but they're really from Murfreesboro. Because it's so, close to Nashville? Well, yeah, so it's like 28 miles and point, 28.6 miles. I mean, we don't really think about that but okay. yeah it takes exact Murfreesboro Murfreesboro and uh yeah so I ended up uh after college in Texas uh, at a program similar to Downline so maybe some of your listeners know what Downline is but there's a program in Texas that's very similar to that before Downline and was that Denton Bible it was a Denton Bible Denton Bible Tommy Church Boys? sort of they, Not, they it had the incredible name of called Young Guns, Young Guns. <laughs> which at the time, as a 22-year-old coming out of college, there was nothing else I wanted to be than a Young Gun. <laughs> young Guns studied the Bible at 6 a.m., which yeah. is not what I really imagined. I didn't get anything in a holster or anything like There's that. There's an incredibly consistent relationship between young people Bible studies and warfare terminology. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it escalates, I think, throughout the, all the manhood series. You know, all it just stuff. goes to the next level. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness John Bryson has tried to curb some of that in the recent authentic yeah. manhood stuff. It's also known as the the program, which is an unbelievably um vague. Vague yet authoritative the the program. <laughs> the program. Of all the programs. Of all the programs. This is the one but it was an incredibly formative year. When you do that, you have to volunteer at one of the ministries at the church. I volunteered with the college ministry, and my boss was a man named John Bryson. And who? I never heard. Of him. Uh, <laughs> I never heard of. Him. So I heard well, of. Had him you in graduated from college at this point? Yes. Okay. So yes. this is your first. Yes, gig I, I graduated college. like May twelfth, and I moved to Denton like May twenty third. So wow. Okay. It was, Super quick, um, and <clears throat> went down there, thought I was going to go for a year, and then moved back home, ended up uh, going on staff with Denton Bible, working for John, JB, and um, met my now wife, your sister. Right. She was involved with that college ministry as well, and we started our life there, having a blast, and... As you may remember, but your listeners probably have never heard. Um, they don't know my life story. Yeah, they don't know mine either. Uh, is that um, we were working at a, a camp out in East Texas that she had been working at for a while uh, called Sky Ranch. And we were all of a sudden expecting on our one-year anniversary, our two jobs had a combined... Was that a surprise? I never asked that question. Was that a surprise? Yes. Well, yes. There's a lot of... Other th- yes. I'll just let me see <laughs> I mean, we know how it happens, but right. it was also yeah. a surprise that it did happen. Okay. I, really, to be honest, take a tangent there, is that, is that most most of our friends at the time, including the Brysons, weren't able to have children and, or were trying to figure out how to have children. And, and, and so most people, our friends in that space, having children wasn't easy. And all of a sudden for us, it was immediately easy on accident. And so... Um, we were interested in having kids. We wanted kids. It wasn't that whatever. It was just 
happened so much easier than we thought. Yeah. But then what ended up happening was is that our combined salaries at camp was just under what one normal person's salary is to feed like one person. <laughs> and so um, I was uh, assigned the task to find a job that would feed three people. Assigned. Of, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, so I had called John and asked him to be a reference for a job I was applying for in Dallas. And he said, well, if you're looking for jobs, you should look for a job in Memphis. They had moved here summer of 03. This was um, kind of spring of 04 uh, when we were started looking. And so I looked for a job here and applied to work with another fellowship uh, legend, Mark Ottinger. He and Tim Burleson had started Ugly Mug Coffee. That's right. And so I got a job working for Ugly Mug, and we moved to Memphis because honestly, we, we a lot of our Dallas friends had moved to Memphis. John had packed up like 22 of our Dallas friends and moved them all to Memphis to start Fellowship Memphis. So a lot of the people that we were new in the Dallas area that we wanted to be friends with had now all moved to Memphis. So by moving to Memphis, we were actually moving to our Dallas community in a lot of ways <laughs> to Memphis. And so even though we had never lived here, we it wasn't that we were negative on Memphis or that we were super positive on Memphis in general. It was just where our friends lived, and they were doing something we were interested in, uh, you know, church. And so, um, and we, I could get a job that hopefully paid the bills. And at Ugly Mug. At Ugly Mug. So that <laughs> we moved here August of 04. What was your job with them? My official title was Vice President of Sales and Marketing. But Whoa. basically, I tried to figure out how to buy coffee. Here's a fun fact. I'd never <laughs> tried coffee. Wait, <laughs> just ever? Ever. <laughs> till my <laughs> second day. <laughs> Of working at a coffee company. So my second day of working at a coffee company, Tim Is this Burleson, stuff any good? It was delicious. <laughs> um, and it's so funny. Actually, I drink coffee, not every day, but almost every day while I worked there for two years. The day I left, I stopped drinking coffee and didn't drink coffee again for like three or four years. And then was at a coffee shop one day and was like, oh, I'll try one of these cups of coffee. And I drink it almost every day since that day. So, um, so I'm drinking it right even- now. I'd never even had coffee. You're I'd, supposed to sell the stuff, and you had never even tasted it. I, I like ever not not ugly mug, coffee, coffee, <laughs> right? Not and not even like <laughs> I'd never had like a frappuccino or like what coffee flavored whatever. How did you How did you work in a college ministry <laughs> and never and ran a coffee shop at a college ministry? <laughs> That's also interesting. I'd never, yeah, I'd never, I'd just never done it. I don't, I don't know where to go with that. Like, I don't know how to. Put that through a lens of how to understand you better. The 90s were a different time. <laughs> <laughs> Just chalk it up to that. The, the what else can you say? All right, that's we were drinking Coke in the 90s. Okay, so that's fine. That was Coke and Sprite, sweet tea. Mm-hmm. Not that much was, has changed. No. You just added coffee. I added coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, then, uh, so you're Ugly Mug. You're VP of Sales and Marketing. Yes. You finally tried the product, so now you're ready to sell it. Yes. You're doing that. But then, did you transition from there to fellowship? Yes. So that's where um, I was working there for two years, but, um, you know, Mark and Tim and I all went to fellowship uh, together. And when we got here, you know, fellowship, this was four or five locations ago. And, you know, our first Sunday in town, I think there was... 70 adults, maybe 65 adults or when so. When you first got here. Yeah, yeah, when yeah, fir- yeah. we first got here. And so, um, you know, we got here and we started going to church. And so 
we were all really involved. You know, I mean, we would all see each other on Sunday. We'd work together all the time, you know, and then we'd start doing different stuff. And I had such a great relationship with JB that, you know, immediately he's like, hey, I want to start a men's breakfast. We help us, you know, organize this or we help volunteer that. Or, you know, Sundays I started, you know, helping out to set up team, tear down team. And so we got really involved right off the bat. Um, and it was, I mean, all our friends, I mean, we moved here to friends that we had had for the past four or five years, you know? And so, um, you know, relationships, we got to start on like second base and to have a second in a new city, you know? And so, uh, uh, so we got really involved really quick and I was helping even organize like men's retreats and, um, you know, I over, I was overseeing some of the Sunday volunteer programming and even recruiting volunteers and that sort of stuff within, couple of weeks i think of being in town yeah that's the way a church plant works <laughs> yeah yeah and so um uh and so we got really involved and, and just loved it i mean and it felt like you know things that we had been doing for the past six seven years so how long were you just sort of serving as a kind of a volunteer role uh yeah did two that, years yeah for two years so um you know i i really enjoyed um uh working with mark and tim uh, I, you know, obviously I didn't have some crazy passion about coffee necessarily. Um, I wasn't an owner in the company and, you know, um, I was really wrestling with what was I going to do the rest of my life. And before the coffee deal, you know, I'd spent the previous four years in ministry work, which was a whole unexpected turn of life. I didn't really coming out of college thinking I was ever going to work in ministry stuff. But what happened was when I went to work for John in, in Denton, was I understood that church was bigger, had more roles, and you could use more gifts inside a church than I thought were available, yeah. right? So, you know, my whole life, I thought if you were going to work at a church, you either had to preach every Sunday, you had to work with youth, you were a secretary, you were a maintenance person, or you are like a worship leader. Like, those were the only five roles possible, right? right. I didn't want to preach every week. Youth sounded miserable. I probably could have done the worship leader thing. Could not do the secretary deal. Can't fix anything. I wanted to be a worship leader. I would be a worship leader right now, but that would be like the biggest <laughs> church D, you know, D growth program, <laughs> you know, in the history. I agree. <laughs> You'd agree. I agree singing. with that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Listen, I love it. I love singing. I think I don't think we do enough singing in church. To be honest, I think we don't worship enough. I don't. I think we should be singing more. Um, but. Uh, that's the only job I'd ever want. But when I worked with John, I saw that there was all these other opportunities, you know. And so, um, and uh, that put Church Radar on the spot for me. And so, uh, spring of 06, um, I went uh, to JB and we had breakfast at uh, Brother Juniper's. Mm -hmm. And I said, Hey, I've been looking around and thinking about going back into the church world. Here's three jobs. There's one in Kansas City, one in Austin, one in L.A. Here's three jobs. I've actually been talking to these different pastors about college ministry director, associate pastor, you know, young adults director. Hold on. The three different locations. Austin. Austin. Awesome. Yep. L.A. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> not, to, not to bash our two or three Kansas City listeners. <laughs> Right. That may be that may be a little high. That may be a little yeah. bit of a high estimate. Three might be <laughs> might be a little high for but or two or three listeners who have some sort of relationship with somebody in Kansas City. You have three listeners who've been to Kansas City at some point in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> a truck stop. Sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, you don't need to explain that. So anyway, you're talking to JB, the three cities. Yeah, and so we were sitting there, and I, I was explaining to these three different jobs. We were talking through the pros and cons of those kind of things. And he asked me, well, do you have any fears about this sort of deal? And I, and I said, well, my biggest fear in any of these jobs is that um, the people that I'd be pastoring in those spaces would be understanding God while I'm learning to pastor, right? So their understanding of God would be at the expense of me trying to learn to be a pastor. That, yeah. that you know, um, that that was, they were... <laughs> guinea pigs. And, yeah, guinea pigs. I'm 29 yeah. years old. I had not, um, you know, I didn't have a decade's worth of experience being a pastor, and that they would have to, you know, that would be their discipleship, their leadership in that space. And that, and I, and I told him, I said, you know, he had, John had gone through a church plant residency, right? Where they, in Little Rock, he had spent a year where they basically prepared him to be a church planter, much like how doctors go through a medical residency before they unleash them to go do heart surgery. They spend years and years. So different than going to seminary and learning about heart surgery, there's this period of life where they spend years learning how to perform that sort of deal. Yeah. And we were sitting there at that breakfast, and we thought, man, what if, I, you know, what if there was a pastoral residency uh, similar to this kind of doctor mentality that not just for the end game of planting a church, I didn't really want to go plant a church someplace. I actually wanted to stay at Fellowship. I just didn't assume that there'd be a job for me here. Yeah, uh, They had a lot of talent here and a lot of people in the roles. And so, um, and so I said, man, I wish that I could go to a, a pastoral residency. I don't want to go to seminary. I don't, you know, I don't want to go plant a church at the end of a year, but I'd love to spend the next two or three years learning how to pastor. Uh, where you could get real experience, real stress, real reality of that, but not so much that you could sink, you know, hundreds right. of people's faith right. by your inability to, <laughs> you know, do those kind of pastoral stuff. And uh, and so we flipped over that sheet of paper I brought, and we started mapping out what a pastoral residency would look like. And by the end of that breakfast, we were like, oh, we should do this. JB's like, we're going to do this at Fellowship. And he's like, will you be the first resident? And I was like, Yes, and so and <laughs> mission uh, accomplished. That's what you went there the whole time for. I did not. I really did not. I mean, I didn't think that that was a deal. But you know, four months later, I officially left Ugly Mug, and August first of '06, I was a Fellowship Memphian staff well, member. You had a lot going for you. I mean, coffee is the official drink of Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even drinking coffee at that breakfast. <laughs> I was drinking water. I, mean, I mean, that's how little I was drinking coffee. I'm. I've crushed half a cup of coffee just since we've started talking. Yeah, I, you're clearly seasoned. It, it's at like this my point. fourth cup to, today. <laughs> I think it maybe something to do with yeah. my age or just ability to. So was it just you in the residency that first year? Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, two other guys, uh, Brian McCurry, who yes. your listeners will probably be very familiar with. So Brian McCurry was on staff at Campus Crusade and was looking to make the leap into the same sort of deal and. Um, JB had met him. I think they'd been coming to church there, and so JB had talked to him about it. And then he and I, uh, Brian and I, met at Chick Fil A and kind of talked about it and, and deal. And so he came on board, and uh, and then another guy named Adam Thomason, who some people might remember him from being back here in the day. He lives in Phoenix now, uh, but um, he had been in he had been in. Is he that guy that did uh, the uh, Rising Red Revolution? Yes, Red Revolution. Okay. Did the rising with us? He was kind of the face of the rising when John and I were pulling that off here in the city, and uh, wrote uh, that book, uh, Red Revolution, uh, which is a really good book. What's he doing now? Uh, he's in Phoenix. He he works for. Oh, I'm going totally blank because uh, I'm terrible at proper nouns. Um, 
he works. Goodness gracious, what conference is that? I'm gonna have to come. Some back conference back. in Phoenix. Well, they do conferences all over space. Uh, the not the, the Justice Conference. Okay. And so, um, but he works in that space. He also has a music label. He has a clothing label. Um, his wife is an incredible singer, Don Toya. Um, was she an American Idol? Yes, I think she was like a competition person for that, or or one of those shows. But she was also at Highland Village. And so she's saying, okay, with that whole crew over there. That's so, where I remember yes, her from. And she's unbelievable town in that space. Yeah. And he's friends with Lecrae and all those guys. And so uh, he's connected with that whole crew that's now in Atlanta. I so. thought you were a resident with Ricky Jenkins. Ricky came after I did. And so, um, you know, Ricky and I started, this is jumping ahead, but, um, you know, we're going to get a couple chapters ahead in the book. That's fine. But we, we started Fellowship Downtown together um, about, a year after he got here. Uh, so, um, but yeah, he came, I think Ricky came fall of 07, maybe, maybe fall of 08, but I think, or no, fall of 08, maybe. I think Ricky came fall of 08. One of the funniest videos I've seen in my life to date. Oh no. <laughs> was, I think, I think it was you being filmed talking about the downtown location mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. but apparently you had a mic over your head. No, it wasn't a mic. Um, <laughs> Yes, there's video out there, and it's really funny because... Is it still out there? Oh, yeah. It gets sent to me <laughs> and to my staff and to whatever. There's multiple owners of this file now. But, uh, yeah, we were on the roof of a uh, parking garage downtown, um, but yet we had a screen behind us, which is kind of like, well, we could have just been anywhere. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> now that now that kind of thinking through whatever, they had set up a screen behind me, but I was on the roof of down, and I'm kind of like, and there was so much noise that we had to keep waiting for planes to not be flying over or whatever. Right. We should have, if it was just a screen, we could have done it in the parking lot <laughs> of our own building. But we drove all the way downtown and um, and set up the screen, and the wind blows, and the screen falls over, and the framing of that that's what it was. Drills me in the head. <laughs> right in the middle. Like, we're waiting for a plane to fly over, and so we're just sitting there, waiting patiently, quietly, and then wham. Gosh, it was so awesome. It's it's great. And there's, <laughs> in retrospect. There's, there's, it, the bleeped-out version is, I think, funnier than the non-bleeped-out version, uh, just because you don't expect bleeping. I think we should let people be the judge of that. We can link it to this thing. I'm okay I with think it. We should. I'm, I'm not, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not against that. I you know, my my pride had much bigger damage than what this video would do to it. And so, um, uh, yeah, and hundreds, if not more, have seen it already. Was so. that a video about the downtown location? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm not. So that was like a promo for that, or not a promo, but an informational kind of. Yeah, we were. We're, I was, we were talking about. I think either one of our vision sessions that we had over at uh, the AutoZone Park where the Redbirds play, or maybe it was talking about when our first Sunday was going to be. I, don't, I was in a jacket, so and we started in August. I'm guessing it was probably, a, we were talking about the session, the vision session. Okay, so you did downtown for a while. Let's fast forward again. How did the transition happen from that to city leadership, choose 901, the whole deal? Yeah, so um, so this is great. You know, when, we, when I came on at, at Fellowship, uh, it was... It was summer of 2006, 
the first Sunday I was here, I think we had like 170 people or something. I mean, on staff, you know. When, 170 uh, people on staff. No, no, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. The first <laughs> first Sunday I was on staff, we had about 170 people um, coming on Sundays, right? 170, 190. So, and I was, uh, I think, the fifth full-time hire. Uh, I may have been the fourth full-time hire somewhere in there. I know there's a couple. Of, Crenshaw had just started, uh, and... Um, uh, I think he was part time, so I was a fifth or sixth person. So um, when we were we were getting started in that space, but when I got started, um, we didn't have in, in fellowship doesn't currently still doesn't have a lot of ministries internally. Uh, kind of the strategy was is how do we go create how do we go infuse our people, our passion, our dollars into existing nonprofits, which is an incredible great strategy. Uh, for probably for most churches, but especially in Memphis, where there are thousands of nonprofits doing great work that really need passionate people to come inside of them, and we and we didn't need to steward the operations and maintenance of organizational theory, which is a lot of what churches actually get bogged down in, instead of taking their assets of passionate people and finances and putting those into existing deals. So what we started doing right off the bat was instead of creating a fellowship homeless ministry, we were putting our people into homeless ministries, right? Instead of creating uh, a fellowship tutoring ministry where we brought kids to some building or some whatever deal, we just went and found tutoring ministries like Lester, you know, that Soup and Linda Campbell were over at. Um, you know, and so we started infusing our people, and ultimately even uh, the Engage Memphis Fund was a piece of that process, right, where we started that deal, we're bringing money in, I don't even know if y'all do that anymore, Yeah. okay, but we were bringing money in to give out to that sort of space and uh, infuse that ministry instead of having stuff, it's actually less expensive for us because there's we're partnering with other people, but people get to jump in uh, to really frontline work, uh, and you can turn people over in that space where, you know, a lot of these volunteers are, you know, they move out of town or they have seasons where they're more available mm-hmm. than not, and so... So that's how we started really engaging the city. Um, and as those relationships developed, we became you know, uh, really good friends with people who were running these organizations. Part of my job was to go and connect with these leaders in this space and help steward our people and connections and relationships in this world. And so uh, organization after organization, you know, as we get to know them, we just start asking questions. Well, you know, what are you working on? How are you challenging? And just trying to figure out how we could be the most help to them, not just you know, oh, you're serving lunch, how many people do you need? Here's $100, we'll buy the lunch too. Right. It was more like, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, well, we want every single kid in this neighborhood to be on reading level by fourth grade. Okay, well, what kind of things are keeping you from being able to do that? Well, it might be finances, but it might be, you know, well, we need a theory of change for curriculum and how do we infuse that process? Or <laughs> we... Uh, um, Mark Ottinger just stuck his face through that window and made me laugh. Because there's anything Mark Ottinger's made me do over the last 15 years or 17, 18 years is make me laugh. He's amazing. So, um, so we started doing that space, and so, uh, and that ultimately led to the hiring of Ricky Jenkins, Jeremy Green, and a guy named Josh Horton as part of this vision of what if we brought on, in the same way we brought on pastoral residents. What if the church actually stewarded what we called at the time city leadership residents, people who came on the church staff, they did serve in a function of about 20% of their time, any given week was for church stuff that needed to happen, but the other four days a week they were giving themselves to the city, you know, in, in different capacities to these different organizations and helping this kind of whatever in that space. 
Um, and when JB and I were thinking through that process of creating that deal here uh, at Fellowship, you know, I remember us whiteboarding it in his office and thinking through that whole deal. And I thought, oh man, that's what I should have done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I was already in this kind of pastoral track and kind of whatever deal and, and, and kind of thinking like I, whatever, but, um, but some of the things I was like, man, that is, that's what I really wanted to do a couple of years ago. Um, but I, we didn't even have terminology or we haven't evolved in kind of where we were in that space. We hired those guys and brought those on a deal. And, um, and part of that role, Ricky was coming in to do like community development. And really what the reality of it was is that Ricky was doing community development, but he really wanted to be a pastor. And I was doing pastoral track, and I really wanted to do community development. And when we got paired up, because obviously a huge win for me, you know, to be paired up with him, with his pastoral gifts and obviously his preaching gifts, not just not just preaching, his pastoral shepherding gifts to go start a church outpost with, right? Yep. I mean— yeah, I mean he's the he's the real prize here, you know, for right. for the for the people, and so we get to go, clearly yes we get to go start this whatever deal, <laughs> and the whole time I'm thinking, man, I wish I could get up every single day and just work on these nonprofit stuff. So did Ricky originally come in not as a pastoral resident but as a city leadership resident? Yes, okay, yes, and so um, and uh, and so he spent we we, we kind of got this thing going, and uh, at downtown, and I just really felt like I was in his way. I mean, you know, I was trying to be a really good leader and I was trying to work really hard to, I wanted to preach because that's what you're supposed to do as a, you know, as a pastor. And I wanted to be able to shepherd people as you're supposed to do. But really like when I couldn't sleep at night or I got up in the morning excited about stuff, it was all about operational function, consulting, you know, helping these other, solve these other problems. And Ricky's so passionate about preaching some text and walking people through these hard times or exciting times through their lives. Right. And so, um, I went to JB January of 2010, um, and this is so. This is four years later after the shift, to whatever, and said, "Hey, you know, um, you know, what would it look like for me to transition out of the world I'm currently in and be basically some sort of consultant, kind of whatever deal into that space?" And um, and we got to talking about this kind of passion I had, whatever. And he's actually the one who put the vocabulary around, "Hey, um, you know, here's how we can do this." what if city leadership residency, you know, the funds that we have behind that, whatever evolves into letting you launch an organization that does that because that's what the residency is trying to accomplish. And what we do is we take Ricky and make him the head of fellowship downtown and whatever. And I'm like, that's exactly, that's, that's exactly it. And, um, and then, so, um, so we were thinking, I mean, how long would that process take two weeks or two years? Um, and that was January. I officially left fellowship, April 30th and May, May 1st of that year became, I became the executive director of what we call city leadership, which actually ended up being just a great name for that whole process. We went through a deal for about two months, kind of thinking through, should there be a new name? Should there be whatever? Like, actually not just new name. What is the name of what this thing that I'm doing? And as we kind of Phoenix, you know, this kind of resources and this mission into something that allows me to go out and start this process, and, you know, it just, I, JB and I, when we came with Name City Leadership a couple of years before that, we just loved that name. And we didn't actually even own the URL or the website or anything at that point. We never had a logo, never had whatever. And, um, and actually, Josh Horton and I hammered it out at a coffee shop randomly, uh, you know, working through whatever, kind of thinking through. We went through a bunch of different name opportunities, whatever. We came back to City Leadership. He's actually the one that looked at me and just said, dude, city leadership's the strongest name that you've got here. Yeah. Keep that name. 
and then we built a brand around that space. And um, so when you started City Leadership, was it just you? Well, what was the what was the launching team? What was that mm-hmm. made up of? So Josh was spinning off to do his own thing. He's still here in the city and um, and has his own business in that space. He actually just converted his business to a nonprofit last week. I was just talking to him yesterday, uh, but. Uh, Jeremy Green was still on the fellowship staff, but was working and was a city leadership resident. His uh, specialty was videography. And so he was um, working with me, but also working with fellowship. And he got caught in kind of this wash of in-between, honestly, uh, that um, what I was evolving this this effort into um, you know, wasn't what necessarily what he signed up to do at the beginning. And um, but he didn't really want to just stay and be a church pastor, you know, or videographer. And so he he got caught in the wash for a little bit there for about a year, uh, as as city leadership kind of formed and got its legs and really became an org. Um, and but when we started city leadership, I started under the concept of we were going to recruit, develop, and catalyze leaders for the city of Memphis. And so we thought, you know, how can we help get more young twenty somethings to move here? And you know, downline a you know, had, had been going a little bit, but they had just really started this emerging leaders thing. And we thought, man, how can we get that from 20 people to 80 people? You know, MTR was just starting and we we're thinking, man, how they were, they wanted, they were at 10 people. They wanted to get to 80 or 90. How could we help them recruit teach for America at the time was 30 people and had a vision to get to 200. How could we help them recruit church health center scholars wanted to start this program for 20 people. And we thought, man, we could help them recruit youth villages, St. Jude, SOS, all these different people. How can we help them recruit college graduates into these programs? And how can we you do that in that space? And we were utilizing at the time the rising to be able to do that. Develop, that was the area where we really want to look at and go, these leaders are struggling with problems, whether it's you know operations, staff, development, finances, communications, whatever. How do we go in and act as like a you know SEAL Team 6 and go in and help them in that space and provide bandwidth that they don't currently have? Uh, but also that they won't need long term. They, you know, they didn't need to hire, uh, you know, a, a COO forever. They just needed somebody to come in and help them solve a problem for the next three months. And so, how can we help developing that deal, develop their leadership, challenge their leadership, and not just do it reactively, but proactively? Go knock on doors and say, "Hey, your organization seems to have doubled in size last two years. I, you're going to start struggling with organizations that double in size like this struggle with these kind of things. Do you feel any of that stuff coming on? Let's get it out ahead of it." So two years from now, you're not having mass staff turnover because you weren't prepared for that stuff. Right. And then catalyzation is this effort that we look at and go, man, there's a lot of silos in space. How do we get these organizations to work more efficiently together? Can we help bridge that gap and bring that into the space? Um, and we create a couple other different things. I created a thing called the city leadership forum, which was a public deal really targeting nonprofit leaders and speakers. We'd bring in speakers and do these luncheons and that kind of stuff. We created Institute where I've focused on four executive directors of nonprofits for a year. We that's been a day with them every week and uh, do that kind of stuff. Uh, we created these things called micro conferences where we'd spend a couple of days down with Peabody and focus on a different topic. We bring people in nationally to come in and focus in with leaders on stuff. <laughs> um, and so, and we had a media and we were doing uh, with that and doing some consulting. And so that's how we get started. So it was me full time. Jeremy kind of in this wash between me and fellowship uh, or city leadership and fellowship. And then actually crazy enough, um, you know, some people at fellowship will know him and he's now, you know, the number two guy at city leadership and the other director there. But my friend Grant Edwards had been in town, was working on his PhD and uh, was working part-time for his dad and had some extra time. And he 
came on with us part-time in a, a part-time role um you know uh a part-time role probably eighth time pay <laughs> uh, of coming on with us um and really helped me develop a lot of our development programs that we were doing for people that were the institute and some other curriculum based stuff uh, i'm not sure you could do much better than grant edwards <laughs> I, well he's the one of the smartest humans in the world right and so uh and then his discipline and his work ethic is pretty poor well, if you poor, if you mean by the best in the world, then right. yes. <laughs> well, that's usually what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so he came on and spent about a year with us before he went off to go work on his PhD for a while. And then he, we recruited him back, and he's been full-time with us now for almost five years. So, Did um, he finish his PhD? He's still working on it. He's chipping away at it, and, uh, and hopefully he'll be done here at some point. But, yeah, he's, he's really smart. So, so you were able to go to him and be like, hey, you know all that work you put into that thing? Why don't you just stop that for a while? <laughs> <laughs> Come over here to yeah. do some city leadership stuff. Yeah, I think I mean I think he was also really wrestling with where it was the end zone on that and how to how's he put his work into a reality of yeah. of stuff. And so um but he's an incredible friend and um you know and a and a great um in great servant investor into the city. I mean just in the way his work is creating capacity in a whole new way. Not a lot of people know the connection. Well, maybe they do, I don't know. Um, I'm only a, about a year and a half Memphian myself. So basically you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but <laughs> you still eat at Applebee's instead of Hughes. So, yeah. Yeah. What's Hughes? <laughs> um, so the, uh, definitely have tons more questions I want to ask you. I know you got to get to a lunch. So what would you want to leave people with? How can people learn more about the organization, what you guys are doing in the city? Yeah, I think I think people underestimate how powerful they are and if they actually express their optimism about what they're doing and where they're doing it, how powerful that can be in building this city. And so I would really just challenge people uh, to express the optimism that they have, not allow that to be hidden uh, in any sort of way, and not just about what, but also where and knowing how important those two things together are in actually multiplying uh, that and creating more energy in other people to actually join uh, the hopes and dreams that they are actually having. And so that'd be the first thing I'd challenge people is, is, is do that, however you want to do that. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, just express your optimism everywhere you can, over your dinner table, on social media if you want to, you know, um, in things that you vote for or pray for or whatever you do, but obviously in your work ethic and, you know, in your family and friendships and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so e- express that a lot. And if we can be of any help, uh, choose91.com, obviously all the social medias and whatever deal, if we can be of help of communicating those kind of things that are, are actually happening out there, sharing those kind of stories, putting a spotlight or megaphone on something someone's doing or helping them point people to a, uh, conglomerate of information uh, about that. Uh, we would love to do that. So choose no one.com. You can check out any of that sort of stuff. Uh, and then just know that I'm just super grateful for everyone who's even just considering how do I get, uh, how do I get better at uh, helping other people do good things, you know? And so yeah. uh, that, that's what it's all about. You know, like, uh, can we help other people get better at fulfilling that big mission? Man, that's awesome. I really appreciate your time. Um, I definitely want to have you back because I think we're scratching the surface on a couple of things that Man, would be awesome to kind let's of do uncover it. a little and bit. And then we want to talk less about me. We can talk more about what where the world's heading because futuristic is where I really love to be. And I know that you I'll and go I there get, with you. get in a lot of conversations about that. <laughs> and it's not just about flying cars, but yeah. you know, how are people evolving and how are we going to make decisions 10 years from now and what, what are we going to regret? 
10 years from now. And I think that's an interesting conversation to have that helps us steer the decisions we're making right now. That would have been a good pivot if you could stay here a little while longer. Well, and it'd be a really long podcast. It'd be uh, really long. That would be a super long, super, super long podcast. So, hey, thanks everybody out there. I appreciate you uh, listening. Thank you. John Carroll, Choose 901. Thanks. Later, Later, Kansas City. (laughs) 